This is Tony Hallow welcoming you to our next episode regarding the church that Jesus called into being. Remember that Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to withstand it or overcome it because, of course, he is the builder. We need to realise, as we looked in our first episode, to the fact that it is Christ who is the head of the church, not any mortal man, neither priest or pope or bishop or pastor or evangelist or someone that is gifted with great charisma, great power, and even those that God has raised up and blessed. We're not the head of the church. We're not the focal point. We're not the ones that men are to look to. But as the Apostle Paul, he said these words, and we should remember them very, very definitely every day of our life. We preach Christ. That's what he said. We preach Christ. We declare the Christ of God. And we're turning to Ephesians chapter 5, and there that wonderful illustration of the love between a man and his wife is used as an illustration of Christ and his love for the church. We find this beautifully portrayed in Ephesians chapter 5, where in verse 22 we read, Wives submit or yield to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. In this day and age, there are many that are very opposed to women being subject or subjugated or under the heel or the fist or the domination of a husband. Well, the church isn't under the fist of Jesus. And it's not subjugated, but subject, willingly, with confidence, with hope, with peace, with joy, with love. We give ourselves to the Lord and he lovingly gives himself to us. I've never met in my 60 or more years as a believer, I've never met a true believer that has ever been able to say that Jesus did anything but good in their lives. He never did anything wrong. He never took advantage of them. He didn't enslave them but rather he set them free. And so if you've got a problem with being subject to your husband, it could be true. You may have chosen the wrong one, or he may have turned out to be something other than the man you thought you could trust. But don't level that accusation at Jesus, because he being the head of the church and we being subject to him, we have nothing to fear. Husbands, love your wives, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Well, you don't see there any dictatorial or overbearing manner in Jesus when it comes to his church. 
Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And that's how a husband is to love their wives. But that's not the theme. Marital bliss and the principles of a happy home and marriage is not the focus of our study. We're looking at the fact that Christ loves his church and gives himself for it. Do you know that he is always available? When you, being part of the church, being part of the body of Christ, when you are a believing member, when you call upon him, he is near. Now his desire is, in the church, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Verse 26 of chapter 5 here in Ephesians. His desire for the church is that it be constantly moving in a developing way towards Christ-likeness, holiness of life, sensitivity in spirit, and commitment in every way. He desires to set us apart. Set us apart from what? Well, Jesus himself said these words in John chapter 17. Remember that beautiful prayer that he prayed after he had shared so intimately with his disciples in the upper room discourse. He then prays and the whole of chapter 17 is given to that prayer. And what he prayed there for the disciples, he prayed for you and me as well. How do we know that? Well, we read it there for ourselves. He says, I pray, I pray not for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, when I am no longer in the world, these will be in the world. And I pray, Father, that you'll keep them through your name. You see, he prayed for you as well as the disciples and the followers at that time. And when he prayed, he prayed this very important prayer. He said, I pray that you'll not take them out of the world, but that you will manifest yourself to them. You'll keep them from the evil one. Verse 15 of John 17. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Separate them by truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Verse 19. And then he goes on to make it very clear of what I've just said. He says, I do not pray for these alone, that is, those that were immediately there. The twelve, or really the eleven disciples, because Judas had left. But also he was thinking of the wider circle of followers, and there were many hundreds. He said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And down through successive ages, people like you and me have heard the gospel. We've heard from faithful preachers. 
and by the Spirit of God, the wonderful gospel of reconciliation. We have received this wonderful gospel. We have received Christ. We've been forgiven of our sins. And as a result, we have been set apart from the world. But the process is ongoing. And the Lord wants us to keep walking in the direction of holiness, truth, in the will, in the purpose, and by the word and the spirit of God, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Well, what a tremendous picture of this sanctifying influence of the Spirit of God, of Jesus, in his church. We are to be enveloped in him collectively and individually. We are his children. We belong to him. We are bone of his bone. And of course, his spirit dwells within us. He says these words, beautiful, beautiful words. He says, the glory which you gave me, I have given them. And there have been many times, haven't there, when the spirit of the Lord has come upon you and welled up within you and you've tasted of the glory of the world that is yet to come. The glory which you gave me, I have given them. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfect in one. So that great uniting of the body of Christ is so important to the Lord. So when there are arguments and quarrels and schisms and splits and a tearing away from one another, and a walking away from fellowship with each other, we not only grieve him and grieve the spirit of God which is in us, but we also, definitely, we are in many ways preventing the flow of the spirit of God from us to the world. I remember our pastor often saying that the incoming and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was Inflow, overflow, and outflow. The inflow is when the Spirit comes within us. The overflow is how it just blesses us, cleanses us, quickens us, stirs us, teaches us, ministers to us in so many wonderful ways. And then it flows from us into the world so that the world may know be able to identify, hey, these are the Jesus people. These are the people that belong to the Lord. I in them, that's Christ, and you, Father, in me, that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me 
before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the Lord's desire, and that corresponds with Paul's revelation in Ephesians 5, that he might sanctify and cleanse the body with the washing of the water of the word, that he ultimately might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it should be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5, 27. Now, dear friends, we move to our new point and the new section. We've looked at defining of the church, which we've just done in a sort of recap. We looked at the defiling of the church. Now, we're going to look at the most serious side, and that is the defeating of the church. Now, in many places, the church is strong. And we ask ourselves, why is it so strong? You can go to places in China, in Africa, in so many places, South Korea, and the church is pulsating with life. Sometimes the environment is hostile. Sometimes there's opposition against the church and against its leaders. And many times there's been severe persecution. I didn't know in 1986 when I first went into what was termed the Soviet Union what I was going to see. I was going to visit the churches that had been arranged and I'd received permission from the Soviet government that I could attend services. They were very doubtful whether I would be allowed to participate, but as it turned out, we did. And when my companion and I got to Russia and then on into Ukraine, we were absolutely amazed how strong the church was. I don't know what we'd thought we'd see. I think that we possibly would have seen a church that was poor financially, and many times that was the case. But here it was, bursting bursting with, with new converts, bursting with praise and worship, and the joy of the Lord was their strength. And many pastors were at that time still in imprisonment, and some of them were even in Siberia, in those awful gulags, those prisoner of war sort of camps, concentration camps, if you will. And they were there, and they were starved, and they were beaten, and they were made to work long hours in the freezing cold of the Siberian temperatures. And then when they came back, they didn't come back to a defenseless church, or a weak church, or a church that in any way was crying out, please help us, please help us. They came back to a virile church, an active church, a joyous church, a powerful church, in some ways a defiant church, because it was defiant 
over that terrific sense of oppression that it lived with. And when I got to those church services and did greet the people and sometimes would speak and certainly played the piano and led in worship, their arms were raised towards heaven and their hands extended and they were just praising God, magnifying God and unafraid, unafraid of any opposition from the government of that day. Oh, we were just so amazed. So in many places, the church is prospering, it's strong, it's powerful, it's blessed, and it's developing and evangelizing. One thing is most important. I found the church was in unity. When I came back from Russia and the Soviet Union, Ukraine and other parts, Hungary, Yugoslavia and places like that, I was able to testify that as far as I could see, they weren't denominationally bent or minded. They were all one in Christ Jesus. And they weren't sort of thinking about or quibbling about doctrines or differences or should we do this or should we do that? We got to the place, and it's the same at this very latest moment in time, that many times I didn't know which denomination I was in. I barely knew the pastor's names. I knew their first name. They would be called brother this or pastor that. But uh, I knew very little about them. And it wasn't because they didn't want to disclose who they were for security reasons. They weren't worried about that. They were caught up with this wonderful, wonderful assurance that they were born again and that they were part of the body of Christ. Now, to defeat the church of Jesus is to undermine that unity. If you want to get in and destroy the church of Jesus, you have got to get in and subvert and cause dissension and ill will, upheaval and disunity. And the devil is a past master at doing that. He gets into the flesh of so many individuals who are not guarded, not guided by the word of God, not discerning, and before long they become part of a whispering campaign or in some way, shape or form, they get to the point where their dislikes for small and petty things overtake their devotion to the things of God. And consequently, there is a fragmentation of not only the body of Christ, but our testimony as well. And that means a defeat. When Paul wrote to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20, he said these words. Right at the end of his epistle, he said, Oh, Timothy, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. That is the training that he had, the impartation of the spirit that he had. Guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and vain babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. 
by professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. They've been overcome by quibbling about things that don't matter. And that's sadly the plight of so many in the body of Christ, quibbling about things that don't matter, arguing points of doctrine that are not redemptive doctrine. They're not redemptive doctrines which are important to us, but rather we get caught up with nothing. And that is so, so sad. Well, Jeremiah, he was very, very, very careful. He wanted to maintain his office as a prophet in the land. And so God spoke to him in Jeremiah 15 and verse 19 and said these words, I will bring you back. Where to? Back into the land, back into the place where he'd first been appointed. If you return, I will bring you back and you will stand before me. If you take out the precious from the vile, you shall be as my mouth. And I will make you to this people a fortified bronzed wall. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, says the Lord. I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible. Well, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? What a tremendous promise. But that's only reiterating what uh, God had originally said to him. God had spoken in the call of God that came to him and said these words, that even as you were formed in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you and I ordained you a prophet to the nations. And then verse 6 of chapter 1 of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, Oh Lord God, I cannot speak. I'm just a young person. I'm just a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their reaction or their faces, for I am with you to deliver you. Then the Lord put forth in his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms. Well, that's almost the same as the calling that came to Isaiah when in chapter 6 the angel brought a hot coal from the tremendous altar of God, the brazen altar, and placed it upon his lips. Well, what did God say to Isaiah? God said to Isaiah, and he says to his church, 
collectively and individuals that are called by God within the church, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Isaiah 54 verse 17. Shall I read it again? No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Hallelujah. So, my dear friends, the church doesn't have to be defeated, but it does have to be watchful. We don't want to live and work with a church that, like Jerusalem, after the captivity, had all of its walls broken down. And Nehemiah had the role, the ministry, the responsibility of putting again stone upon stone with a tremendous energetic and dedicated team and they rebuilt the walls to keep the enemy out. But of course, remember Sanballat and Tobiah, they conspired to prevent the wall from going up. They wanted that Jerusalem would be vulnerable, that the enemies, and they were enemies, and those they represented who were enemies, would be able to come in and plunder at will. And the devil wants to do that with the church of Jesus Christ. He wants to be able to have entry. And the way he has entry into the church is through dissension. That's vain babblings, contradictions of what is falsely called science. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20. Be careful, church, that we maintain the unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. Well, next time we meet for our next episode, we're going to look at the various shades of uh, churches that we have in our nation and the Western world, this so-called mechanized world, sophisticated world, this intelligent world. And yet there are different types of churches and some of them have got tradition that they trust in and others are very, very well built on truth rather than just earthly human tradition. Be with us next time when we look at the various kinds of structure and the quality and the personality and the character of various churches and individuals. Well, there's the mother church. There's the smother church. There's the other church. And there's the brother church. So be with us for our next episode when we analyse those different churches, who they are, what they are, and how they fit in or don't fit in to the biblical pattern. Thank you.